Well, good morning, everyone, again. Get your, uh, your scripture page there ready. You won't even have to open your Bible this morning. So <laughs> we'll be looking at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Before we get to that, does anyone remember the name Leona Helmsley? <laughs> she had a nickname, if you remember. The Queen of Mean. <laughs> All right. Um, she was an infamous New York uh, hotel billionaire, her and her husband, and her, her death provided just as, was just as colorful as her life. She was ruthlessly cutthroat. The New York businesswoman became a symbol of greed. When it was revealed, she told her housekeeper, we don't pay taxes, only the little people pay taxes. However, the IRS disagreed with her and she served 18 months in federal prison on tax evasion charges in the early 90s. Over the years, Helmsley tormented her less well-off employees. When a waiter spilled some water on a saucer at one of her hotels, she smashed the cup on the floor and told him to beg for his job. When she refused to pay a bill for a $13,000 barbecue pit due to, quote, shoddy workmanship, an acquaintance told her the builder had six children to feed. Her response was, why didn't he keep his pants on? Then he wouldn't need the money. In true diva fashion, when Helmsley died in 2007 at the age of 87, her will bestowed much of her vast fortune to her pet pooch. The Maltese named Trouble left, was left $12 million, more than the 10 million gifted to her own brother, and two of her grandchildren received nothing. Trouble lived for 12 years and was tended to round the clock at the Helmsley Sandcastle Hotel in Sarasota, Florida. The dog was blind and stricken with health issues before her death. Her caretaker spent $100,000 annually on her care, including $8,000 for grooming and $12,000 for dog food. Trouble, who faced 20 to 30 death and kidnapping threats, also retained a full-time bodyguard, according to news reports. <laughs> the will also stipulated that when the Maltese went to the big kennel in the sky, she would lie beside Helmsley in the 12,000 square foot Helmsley family mausoleum in Sleep, uh, Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in Westchester. 12,000, that's, that's like four times the size of my house. <laughs> and finally, the dirt-hating Helmsley ordered that the mausoleum be washed or steam cleaned at least once a year, for which she left $3 million. Now, our message this morning is an infinitely more glorious inheritance story than this. <clears throat> we'll be looking at Ephesians 1, 3 through, uh, 3 through 14 on your page there. And uh, we'll be looking at scriptures referring to our heavenly inheritance. We'll look at the scriptures, what the scriptures say regarding the aspects of this inheritance. And also, we'll look how the scriptures transform the concept of an inheritance to include not only the acquisition of spiritual blessings and promises from God, but also the concept of the believer being Christ's inheritance. However, we first need to look at what, what a legal inheritance is and what's involved in, in the process of an inheritance. According to Merriam-Webster, the verb inherit, inherit is defined as to receive from an ancestor a right, a property, as descendable by law at the ancestor's death, to receive a legacy or a title. So a legal inheritance refers to actual property, goods, or status 
received after a family member's death. Now, while those definitions certainly apply in some ways to the biblical concept of inheritance, there are additional qualities to be considered in a spiritual inheritance. In the theological sense, to inherit means to receive an irrevocable gift with an emphasis on the special relationship between the benefactor and the recipient. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, God's promise to Abraham was the basis of the Old Testament uh, inheritance, and the land of Canaan was bequeathed to him and his descendants as an eternal possession. And as the biblical history of Israel unfolded, the promised inheritance came to specify that only a righteous remnant will inherit the world as an everlasting possession. So from the promise of Canaan as Israel's inheritance came other aspects of this concept. The nation itself of Israel was described as God's inheritance, whom the Lord would never forsake. And the Lord, conversely, was described as Israel's inheritance. The privileged position of Israel as God's chosen people placed them at the center of God's plans for blessing. Now, the physical inheritance of the land in the Old Testament was a parable in the sense that it symbolized something to come, a spiritual promised land that was to come in the future. The physical inheritance of the land represented the spiritual reality of a much greater and glorious promised land to come, provided by God for his chosen people from many nations, not just Israel. Now, all inheritances involve three elements. First, there has to be a benefactor, the individual in possession of the inheritance. Then there has to be the inheritance itself. There has to be something to give or to leave to someone. Finally, there has to be an heir, the recipient of the inheritance. So let's look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, where Paul speaks of the greatest of all spiritual blessings in a past, present, and future analogy. All right. So let's read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and on earth in him. In him also we have attained, obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. All right, so these verses here, we can ask, who is the benefactor? And I think that's pretty clear. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Also in verse 11, in him, as referring to Christ, 
also we have obtained an inheritance. So God the Father, through Christ, has provided us with an inheritance. Now Peter 1, 3 to 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our... This is on your page if you want to follow. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has given us new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God the Father, through Christ, has given us first a new birth, to a living hope, and then it says to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, and it's reserved for you in heaven. Now there has to be an heir, but there was a problem with the heirs. Romans 3.28 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Scriptures say sinners shall not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6.9 says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Ephesians 2.1.3 says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So since we as sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, and by nature children of wrath, who cannot inherit the kingdom of God, how could we possibly become heirs of God? Well, the answer is God had to make a way. Verse 5 of Ephesians, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, the definition of adoption is the action or the action or fact of legally choosing another's child and bringing it up as one's own. We in our former state were not children of God. He had to adopt us. He had to make us his own. He chose us and pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to be his children and heirs. And that adoption, the believer's adoption, as a child of God was predetermined by God from eternity past. So God had to intervene and convert sinners into his children, his heirs. Otherwise, he would not have no human heirs if he did not intercede. So who are the heirs? If you want to look on your page there again, John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Romans 8, 16 through 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So according to Romans 8, who are the heirs of God? That would be the children of God. And who are the children of God? John 1 says, those who believe on his, meaning Christ's name. And who are they? And John 1 again, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To these people he gave the right to become children of God and thereby his heirs. 
So if you're a born-again believer in Christ, you are a child of God and an heir along with Christ to all that belongs to the Father. Only the children of the king have a right to partake in the king's inheritance. No one else, contrary to popular opinion. It's also incredible to realize that we are joint heirs with Christ. If you know Christ, you are a part of his bride, the church, and he is the bridegroom. And he, as the bridegroom, allows you to share his inheritance from the Father. Now let's look at the blessings that Ephesians talks about. <clears throat> all right. First of all, in, in verse 3, he mentions spiritual blessings. Okay, uh, These are spiritual blessings rather than earthly blessings. Heavenly blessings rather than temporary blessings. Yes, we have earthly blessings. Everything we have, everything we accomplish is a blessing from God. But by themselves, what good are earthly blessings? They are but temporary. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And these are eternal blessings that come to those who are his children and his heirs. These blessings are everything in heaven. Heaven has to offer. Nothing is held back from the child of God. Let's look at blessing number one. This is in verse four, four and five of Ephesians here. <clears throat> the first of these blessings is the blessing of being chosen and predestined. And it is tied to the very essential characteristic of God that he is in control. We see the word chose in verse 4. The word predestined in verse 5. Predestined again in verse 11. And why was this done? Why did he choose us and predetermined our destiny? As it says in verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will. He willed it. He made it happen. At verse 6, he says, he made us accepted in the beloved. And that's referring to Christ. He made us accepted in Christ. This is the first and primary of all heavenly blessings. This is where our salvation begins. Without him choosing us, we were hopeless, lost in sin. And this doctrine of sovereign choosing, predestination, sovereign election is what determines not only the beginning, but the end. <clears throat> it determines a person's eternity. God has determined the believer's eternity. It is the result of the sovereignty of God. Every heavenly blessing is granted to believers. And why? Because they were chosen. They were chosen in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Their names were written in the Lamb's book of life, and they are secured to the glory for which they are chosen. <clears throat> no sinner is capable of choosing God. Choosing Christ or choosing life or choosing salvation. As the scripture said, we are dead in trespasses and sins, dead and buried and blind. Salvation is a work of God alone. And over and over again, the scripture says God chooses whom he will save. 1 Corinthians 1.30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. It says it's because of him, not because of us. Blessing number two is in verse seven <clears throat> of Ephesians. The second blessing is redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. What is redemption? 
The Puritan Thomas Watson said this about redemption. Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It cost more to redeem us than to, to make us. In the one there was but the speaking of a word, in the other there was the shedding of blood. The creation was but the work of God's fingers, but redemption is the work of his arm. Redemption is the heart and soul of Christianity. <clears throat> Our Lord himself directed us to the central nature of his redeeming work when he said, the Son of Man has come for one reason, to give his life a ransom for many. As John MacArthur says, quote, redemption has to do with the purchase by payment of a price. Redemption then focuses on how God bought us from our bondage to sin, how God paid the price. It views man's condition as a prisoner, a prisoner to hopeless iniquity, and sees God coming to set the prisoner free by paying the full required price. Redemption continues going on in the present. God is redeeming his people every day, and it's an ongoing process that will be completed only in eternity. And it's not only the redemption of those who belong to the Lord, but it's the redemption of everything that has been corrupted by sin. As verse 10 says in Ephesians there, <clears throat> excuse me, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. We need to remember the creation itself was corrupted by sin. When that, when that fruit was eaten, it changed everything, not just men. So election is what God has done in the past. That's done. Redemption is what he's doing in the present. And in the future will be glorification, the completion of his salvation plan in his people and in the creation when all things will be made right. Blessing number three now is the inheritance in verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. To him, him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now notice the, the key word in these verses is the word inheritance. It appears a couple times in these verses, in verse 11 and in 14. Now the Greek word translated as inheritance is the Greek word kleru, and it has two meanings, and they both apply here. First of all, it means exactly as it's translated in English. We've obtained an inheritance. But in addition, it also means that we ourselves are an inheritance. In other words, we've, we have been made an inheritance. So just like I, earlier when I referred to the Old Testament in Israel being God's inheritance and God being Israel's inheritance, there are two aspects of inheritance here also. We've been made an inheritance. Let's, let's look at what that means. First of all, an inheritance is possessed by an heir or a, benefact, or a um, benefactor. It belongs to someone. So if we are an inheritance, whose inheritance are we? To whom do we belong? John 6, these are on your, your sheets too. John 6, 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, 
and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it at the last day. And John 17, 13, 17, 6 says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. And lastly, John 17, 9 and 10, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So we are Christ's inheritance. We, he purchased us at the cross. He inherits us from the Father. And all, as those scriptures say, the Father has given to us to him as an inheritance. Finally, this, as the scriptures mention in verse, uh, where are we now? verse 13 that we are sealed, 13 and 14, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. All right, meaning number one, our heavenly inheritance, inheritance is guaranteed. Every heavenly blessing that heaven offers is guaranteed ours. But also number two, our status as an inheritance is guaranteed. It is also sealed. We cannot lose it. The Spirit is our guarantee to the completion of redemption, which is glorification. And who's the purchased possession in verse 14? It mentions the purchased possession. Well, we are that purchased possession. We were purchased with a price. But it goes far beyond us. Hebrews 1, 1, and 2, and I think Toby read this last week. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in the time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. So God the Father has planned for Jesus ultimately to inherit everything. And this adheres to Jewish inheritance laws that said the firstborn child received the wealth of the family's estate. However, with Christ, the term firstborn does not mean he was born or created. It means uh, a reference to his preeminence or his rank. Christ is the heir of all that God the Father has, and we will share in that as co-heirs. All that exists belongs to Christ and everyone, people, angels, and all powers in the universe will bow before him. Now, the only question is, can we trust God's word? Well, Hebrews 10.23 says, he is faithful that promised. Romans 4.21 says, what God has promised, he is able to do. The God who is truth, who defines truth, speaks truth and only truth, promises to all who are in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And that is summed up by the past act of election the present act of redemption, and the future act of glorification. So the first blessing was to be chosen in the first place. The second blessing was to be redeemed. The third is our inheritance, and the final blessing is to be glorified. Now let's look at for, uh, on your page there, 1 Peter 1, 3, and 5. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we see again God as God the Father as benefactor, leaving an inheritance to us. Now an inheritance usually involves the death of the benefactor, at least on earth it does. Someone dies and they leave someone an estate. Well, God the Father didn't die, obviously, but someone else did. His son died to provide the inheritance to those who he has called. Without his death, there is no inheritance. Hebrews 9.15, and that's the last scripture on your page there. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So Christ is the go-between. He is the mediator. He is the one who reconciles God and man. As Hebrews says, he did this, quote, by means of death. And why? That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Peter says this, is, this inheritance is first, number one, incorruptible, for which the Greek word aptharthos is used. And that means it is perfect, pure, not tainted in any way. And it's not liable to corruption or decay. It's impervious, immune to decomposition or decay. It's imperishable, it cannot be destroyed. It is guaranteed, it never ends. Heavenly treasure will never wear out or need fixing. It's forever new. Earthly inheritances can spoil, they can lose value, they can be lost. Things we inherit on earth wear out over time. Undefiled also, it says, our inheritance is pure and cannot be touched by sin or spoiled by sin. It's unfading. It's not, a, it's not affected by the passing of time. It will never wear away and become less fruitful. Reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. It is kept. It is guarded. It is guaranteed. It cannot be stolen out of heaven. We're not going to get there and say, oh, it's, not, it's no longer here. It's there. Always there. Peter assures us that we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven one that is safe and secure because we're not the ones guarding it. Our treasure, which is held and protected by God, cannot be stolen or ruined. Our security and inheritance are not found in possessions, but in our relationship with Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me, so let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we've learned this morning through your scriptures, Lord, that you have, you have chosen us to receive this wonderful inheritance, Lord, that we cannot even imagine at this point in our lives. <clears throat> but as Jesus told the thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. And we, <clears throat> we know that Paul says that I has not seen nor ear heard the wonderful things that God has prepared for those that love him. <clears throat> so we know that this inheritance is guaranteed, guaranteed for us, Lord, and that we are also your inheritance, and that you are ours, and that uh, we will be like Christ one day and reign with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. All right.